I used the same word when I was describing it to a friend that it feels like a conspiracy theory at times. And I felt like I was reading something that was by somebody who was obviously very intelligent, but in the process of losing their mind. Hello. Hi, everybody. Our guest today is Megan O'Giblin. She is an essayist and a feature writer for Harper's, The New Yorker, N Plus One, The Believer, The Guardian, The New York Times. Are you impressed yet? The Paris Review Daily. She is a three-time Pushcart Prize winner, which I think makes you our second Pushcart winner, but our fourth Pushcart Prize winner on this podcast. Best American Essay of 2017. She wrote a book called Interior States, which won a Believer Award in 2018. She writes a charming, amazing, and hilarious advice column for Wired, which I highly recommend you check out. The link will be in the description. We, Megan and I, were introduced by an algorithm. Two algorithms, really. So I was introduced to her work because Amazon just thought I would like her book. And boy, was Amazon right about that. How did you find me? Because you already knew me when I wrote you. Yeah, I came across your great TED talk when I was doing research for my book, God, Human, Animal, Machine. I was doing a lot about machine learning algorithms, particularly when it came to creative tasks. We have the algorithms to thank for introducing us. Listeners of this podcast don't know that I did a TEDx talk. And judging by how many people have watched it, most people don't know that. But I did do one. You can check it out. It was actually kind of a moment for me when I found out you had watched it, because I was like, oh, yay, people who I'm trying to reach have seen this. So the best decision I made in 2021, I reached out to Megan, she agreed to be on the show. And I never do this. I always just leave the book choice up to the guest. But I had this intuition that I should reach out to her and say, don't be afraid to pick a challenging book. I'm so glad I did that because the book that she chose was The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind by Julian Jaynes. I think it actually sounds boring, but it is actually completely riveting. Unless you're a consciousness nerd, it sounds like a boring book, but it is actually well-written and just easy to read and totally riveting. We should warn the audience that you are just not prepared for the ideas in this book. This is the kind of thing that you will be a different person after you listen to this podcast. You'll be a different person after you read this book. If we can reproduce these ideas with some level of fidelity, it's going to really change the way that the listeners see everything. So with that incredibly over-the-top intro, we should get started. And I'll start by just asking you the first question that I ask everyone, which is why did you choose this book? I wrote this whole book and was engaged in research for, I don't know, five or six years about consciousness primarily and also about technology. James's name came up here and there, not as much as you would think though. And so I was sort of aware of the book and I never read it. It didn't seem like it was sort of one of the landmark books about consciousness, but it was actually after I had published the book and was promoting it. And I talked to a friend of mine who was reached out he had just read the book and he said, you've got to read this Julian Jaynes book because he talks about metaphor and how metaphors related to consciousness, which is something that I talk about in my book as well. So I read it and I, I had the same experience you did. I just devoured it. I found it riveting. Then I had like nobody to talk to about it. So I'm really excited when you reached out. I think I had just finished reading it for the first time at that point. And I was just so thrilled that you were up for talking about it because there's so many mind blowing ideas in here. I started it the day you picked it. And I read it and this was like one of those books that I think I finished it and also got 10% of the way through it again on the same day. Like I just flipped it over and read it again. It rewards rereading too, because there's a lot in it. It's almost too much to take in the first time you read it. So I can definitely understand that impulse. So the book is 
a little bit difficult to describe. It's a book about philosophy. It's a book about ideas that are new and therefore kind of uncomfortable and difficult to talk about. But we figured that the book is basically four hypotheses. So I think we're going to list the hypotheses so that the listener is oriented. And then I'm just going to ask you questions about the book and we'll just go from there. This is also one that I think if you listen to this podcast episode, you're going to get something out of this. You should definitely read this book because it's an amazing book and you should absolutely read it. There are four main hypotheses in this book. Hypothesis one, consciousness is based on language. So that's already a pretty cool idea. These are sort of sub categories of this hypothesis that perceiving is not the same as consciousness. Problem solving is not the same as consciousness. And consciousness is constantly filling in a story and giving us a before and after, whereas that is not necessarily the experience of a non-conscious mind. That's hypothesis number one. I think that one is non-controversial or at least explainable, maybe. Number two, the bicameral mind. This is where things get a little crazy. <laughs> yeah, this is where it starts to get weird. The bicameral mind is essentially your brain is divided into two parts. This is true. You got a left brain and a right brain. The language center in your right brain doesn't produce language. The analogous part of your left brain is what you use to produce language, and it doesn't do it in your right brain. And everything else apparently in your brain is mirrored hemispherically, where if you can do it on the left side, you can do it on the right side, but language is not like that. So James's hypothesis is that people before about the age of the Greeks were essentially listening to commands from their right brain and interpreting these commands with their left brain and were not conscious the way that we would see it, but they were more like hallucinating automata. Yeah, he compares it to how schizophrenic patients or people who are in states of psychosis often hear hallucinated voices in their head. And that he actually believes that those states of psychosis is a vestigial function of the bicameral mind. We should say that this is not like a tract where he presents these as opinions. The book is mounds of data that support this argument and experiments that he's done and experiments that others have done. It's like incredible how much knowledge he has, like how much multidisciplinary knowledge he was working through in this book. He has this knowledge of neurological structures of the brain and psychology and ancient history and burial practices, idol worship, all of these things that it's really unusual, I think, for somebody today who's writing about consciousness to have that breadth of knowledge about their subject matter, just because the areas of study and inquiry are usually so narrow today. It's a very strange experience reading the book, actually, just to experience that knowledge of his. So the bicameral mind, let's just talk a little bit more about that. So it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around. So can you rehearse some of these arguments for us? I'll give it a stab. Yeah, so the bicameral mind, it was a period of human evolution between the ninth millennium and the second millennium BC is sort of when the bicameral period was. It was a state of mind or mentality that preceded what we would today call subjective consciousness. When James is talking about consciousness, he's talking about it in a very narrow sense. So he's not talking about perception generally or cognition or an ability to be aware of your environment. He's talking specifically about self-awareness and the ability to introspect using consciousness in this older term, the way that Descartes and Locke used it. So when he says that people didn't have consciousness up until about 1000 BC, is when he thinks subjectivity entered the picture. Before that, it wasn't as though people were zombies. The bicameral man was able to do a lot of problem solving, a lot of complex cognitive tasks, 
But instead of introspecting and doing this the way that we do today, they were basically responding in a very automatic manner to this bicameral mind. So the term bicameral, it means two-chambered. It's basically referring to the two hemispheres of the brain. So he basically believed that the mind was split into two almost autonomous entities. And so the right hemisphere, which is the executive part of the brain, the part that can sort of plan and problem solve, this was the part that produced the vocal hallucinations. And then the left side of the brain heard those commands in the form of a human voice as a hallucination. And people interpreted this as the voice of God. Jaynes argues that this is how religion started. This is where we got that idea of God is people hearing these voices in their head and all of the religious and worship impulse grew out of that. He goes into much more detail about the theory too and the structure of the brain, which I think is some of the most interesting portions of the book. So I was sometimes listening to the audiobook and I'm listening to the section about how the way that people would do things is by hearing these hallucinated voices in their heads telling them things. And I had this moment where I'm experiencing this because I'm listening to this person reading this book to me in my head. Ah, what an experience. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. I know that this isn't a hallucination, but this must be what it felt like. It's interesting to think about how that functions now with listening to books or listening to podcasts where you're sort of walking around hearing these voices. And he does talk about how when you're hearing information, it's much more immediate and it actually has a greater effect on you than when you're reading. Reading, there's sort of this sense of distance. You can disengage if you want to, but the voices are there. You can't escape in a voice in your head. I remember this experiment where they tried to get rats to be able to find food and they had a colored wall and the food was always on the left. You would think that they would figure out that the food was to the left of the blue wall, but they could never do it. So they had humans do it. Obviously, humans figure out left of the blue wall is where the food is. But then they gave the humans earbuds and started playing really complicated instructions to sort of tie up that part of their brain. And the humans couldn't figure out that the food was to the left of the blue wall either. Without the ability to sub-vocalize, we weren't able to even do the most menial tasks. And what Jane says about the bicameral mind is that it's the part of your brain that gives you that intuition where as a writer, it knows what your book is going to be and your left brain just needs to sit down and write until enough of it is there that you can edit it into your original vision. I don't know if that's how you work, but that's how I work. And that to me really is the most fascinating chapter in the book when he's talking about particularly poetry and music, but I think it applies to writing generally too, where you have these experiences where you don't know where the idea came from, right? And I think that a lot of creative people have that experience. It seems as though it came out of nowhere. James would say that the right hemisphere had some role in sort of transmitting that over to the left hemisphere of your brain. And that even though you don't hear it necessarily as an auditory voice, you're still receiving this information as though it came from somewhere else, almost like divine inspiration. It's almost like your right brain knows what to do, and it has to go through this process to explain it to your left brain so that you can actually do it. Whereas maybe the bicameral people, he thinks that they were more in touch with being able to just do what their right brain was telling them to do. Now we have so much logic, (laughs) like you're saying, maybe the ability to narrativize our experience for ourselves. The whole book in a way, I think is sort of talking about this disenchantment where we lost touch with that right side of the brain and the voices that we were hearing. It's curious to hear your thoughts about this too, because he talks about how these voices were often speaking in verse, almost in a way that was musical. It's like the first poems were sung 
And he argues that because early poetry was written down, he talks about, you know, the Iliad and all of these ancient epics that were passed down as oral narratives during the bicameral period before people were actually conscious. These stories are being narrated as though they were being chanted from the gods. I think even the Iliad, it starts by saying, this is the story that was told by the gods. And the meter that you find in those epics is this primal rhythm that he believes is really bound up with that right side of the brain. Yeah, that the, it responds to rhythm. And he cited some studies in there where the speaking in tongues people, that the glossolalia follows a similar structure, no matter what language you speak. Yeah, and that it's always the same meter that people speak or write in under hypnosis or in states of psychosis. And it's also the same meter as the Iliad, which is crazy to me. So there's some underlying pattern that your brain wants to think in and that that's what the right brain was communicating to the left brain in. And that would explain a lot of things. He has a chapter on music. He describes a pianist playing the piano and says that presumably the skills to play the piano were learned consciously, but that they're not executed consciously. That is on the surface level, totally correct. You're not thinking, okay, third finger on C. I don't know what pianists think, but that's what I would think on guitar, right? You're not thinking that consciously, but that is kind of the same way as saying that I don't think about grammar consciously when I'm speaking. I mean, I am thinking consciously about what I'm saying right now. I don't have to think about the mechanics of how to say it because I have mastered it. It's the same when you're performing. Right, 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 right. No, that makes sense to me too. I mean, a lot of this gets into the problem with this terminology too, which the way that he's describing consciousness is so narrow, particularly in those early chapters when he's talking about that example of playing the piano. A lot of people would probably take issue with describing consciousness solely as awareness or like what you're focused on at any particular moment. You know, it doesn't mean that you're not conscious of what you're doing, just like you said, as you're playing, you're just maybe not thinking about those micro level problems because you're thinking more of the macro. He's using consciousness almost as though he's talking about attention. He talks about how a lot of problems of logic and reasoning and creativity are not conscious. Obviously those things are happening through processes that are conscious to various degrees, but maybe we're not aware of what's happening in that moment. My biggest problem with the book is that consciousness is just a squirrely term. On the one hand, I loved this book and I feel like it opened my mind. On the other hand, it's a little bit like super academic Zachariah Sitchin. Zachariah Sitchin's kind of like low rent L. Ron Hubbard. Like he's a sci-fi writer who proved all of these crazy things by using intensely misinterpreted bits of Mesopotamian history. I think James has a pretty solid grasp on a seriology, especially compared to Sitchin, but the idea of describing consciousness leads to these kinds of wormholes that you can get into these weird little fallacies with little bits of history, because the idea that you're trying to describe itself is so hard to grasp. It's easy to find these sort of conspiracy theories that seem true. I used the same word when I was describing it to a friend that it feels like a conspiracy theory at times. And I felt like I was reading something that was by somebody who was obviously very intelligent, but in the process of losing their mind. <laughs> and James, during this point of his life, I think he was lecturing at Princeton. He had a very illustrious career and went on and produced more work after this. But it has that feeling of referential mania, sort of what you were describing, where you have an idea. Everywhere you look, you find evidence to prove it. And I think it is true that he knows so much about 
ancient history and all these different fields in which I can't imagine he was an expert in them, but he clearly has a lot of knowledge. There's sort of this crazy energy where he's trying to use all of his knowledge to prove this grand theory. And I agree with you. I don't know that it comes off as completely convincing to me. I admire that impulse. And I feel like maybe uh, I've experienced that at times in my own writing where you get into that creative space where you are sort of fixated on an idea and it's really easy to make all of these connections to other areas that may or may not exist. He's clearly very erudite and smart and knows a lot of stuff. So I think it's very convincing. I just think there's no way that it's right. <laughs> One thing that I read too in a retrospective of this book that was published, I think in 2008, it was a very important theory at the time, like uh, Daniel Dennett wrote a review of this book and Ned Block. And then in the 40 or 50 years since then, nobody's really engaged with it the way that they have other prominent theories of consciousness. And the writer was arguing that the reason for that is because nobody has that breath of knowledge that you really have to understand so many different fields to be able to prove this theory wrong. And nobody is really willing to get into the weeds of something that's outside of their jurisdiction the way that he did to create this theory. I mean, it's difficult for me to say whether it's plausible or not. I'm sort of just going on a, a gut feeling based on what I've read and how other people in the field have responded to it. Dennett said something really interesting in his review where he said, when he talks about this theory to other philosophers, his main problem is trying to convince them to take it seriously. And he said, I do take it seriously. And I think that there's something in here. He agreed with parts of it. And he actually thought that you could throw away all of the stuff about auditory hallucinations and the theory would still stand, which I don't know if James would even agree with that. Yeah, I don't know if that's true. One of the things he says at the end is that scholars look for the thread that they can pull to unravel this entire tapestry. And he says it's not there. And if it were there, someone would have pulled it 25 years ago because I'm reading the 25th anniversary edition or something. And he said, there's four hypotheses. And if any one of them collapses, the other three could stand just fine. And maybe that's true. But I think I have a thread that we can pull for the bicameral mind. And we'll do that at the end. And we'll see what you think. The third hypothesis is that consciousness is a consequence of the breakdown of the bicameral mind. The title of the book, The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, what he suggests is that for a variety of reasons that he goes into that have some vague historical precedence, people started, I guess, evolving into more what we would call subjective consciousness and that subjective consciousness came with some survival advantages, which meant that it spread. And it also wasn't something that you had to be born with. So someone could be taught to be subjectively conscious. That's an unusual part of his theory, too, is that consciousness is completely cultural and learned, that it's not something that we have just biologically, that each generation has to learn it from scratch, basically, and that we learn it based on how we talk about consciousness and the way that we hear other people talk about consciousness through the metaphors that we use. You know, not only does he believe that consciousness is cultural or learned, he believes it's entirely created by language and through metaphors. So if you think about the language we use to talk about our mental lives, it's always metaphors. It's usually spatial metaphors. We say something is in the back of our minds or in the forefront of our consciousness. We use visual metaphors. We say, oh, I see the solution to a problem as that we have eyes in our brain. We describe ideas as brilliant or dull. He goes on and on for pages. Because your consciousness is not a physical entity, it's not a space. Anytime you try to describe your mental life, you're using metaphors. 
And so he argues, I think the term he uses is that consciousness is a lexical field. So it's an entirely conceptual metaphorical space and it corresponds to the real world, sort of the way that a map corresponds to a landscape. So it's a map that's made out of language essentially, and that helps us navigate the world. Part of that consciousness is what he calls the analog self, which is similarly a mental construction. It's sort of a kind of avatar, a way that we represent ourselves to ourselves. And we can use this to model behavior or anticipate the outcomes of different decisions. And that this is basically how we get self-awareness. And I think that he says that the concept of the self is what consciousness is, essentially. That without saying how we got it and whatever, that his difference between a bicameral person and you and I is that we have an analog self that we can imagine in the past, imagine in the future, imagine in a different situation. Something else that he talks about too is how having that analog self, it's really crucial to how we understand time. Also the ability to spatialize time, to think of time as something that we're moving through in space. We tend to think of the past as behind us and the future is in front of us. That's also a metaphor. Time doesn't have any sort of spatial dimensions, but you have to sort of imagine yourself in a landscape. You have to imagine this analog self moving through time in order to have a concept of time. So yeah, I think that's a great way to distill it though. So that's the third one. The fourth one is just the split brain. And that's just that the sides of our brain have different functions that are discrete. And this was an area of investigation in 1976. And now this is pretty much how we understand the brain. Left brain, right brain. This is stuff that you learn in high school science class, but it was new in 1976, or it was cutting edge in 1976. Those are the four hypotheses. Consciousness is based on language, the bicameral mind, the consciousness as a consequence of the breakdown of the bicameral mind, and the double brain. So we were talking about metaphors. I thought one of the things that he started with is this is something that you surely researched for your book too, is just the history of metaphors of consciousness and how they always seem to be whatever the person making the metaphor is looking at at the time that he or she is writing. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they tend to be technological too. We're sort of stuck in this paradigm now where we think of the brain as a computer or a machine of some sort. There's been all sorts of different technological metaphors for the brain. It was a telephone switchboard, that it was a steam engine, a chariot. I mean, it goes all the way back to ancient times that we see our minds through these tools that we invented ourselves. Maybe just tell us a little bit more about how metaphors of the mind and the problems that they cause in our thinking about consciousness. Something that I was interested in exploring in my book is where did the idea that our minds are computers come from? Like, when did that arise? And it actually came about in the 1940s and 50s, like right at the origin of modern computing. At the time, it was a really brilliant metaphor and it was limited in some sense that the brain sort of worked in a way that was vaguely computational. And as it evolved, it became a lot more literal instead of being a way to understand how our minds work. It became more so, no, our minds are actually computers. Like there's no difference. And this is part of the legacy of functionalism, I guess, is this idea that basically that there's no difference between our minds and machines so long as they're performing the same functions. Which leads to weird conclusions. Yeah, it leads to lots of weird conclusions, like, for example, that we can transfer our minds to computers, that we can transfer consciousness, upload it to a supercomputer at some point in the future, that our minds are just patterns of information, hence they're purely spiritual and don't need to be attached to our bodies. 
this metaphor emerged in a way as a way to talk about the brain in like a very material sense that consciousness is something that can be studied in a lab, which was for a long time, you couldn't even talk about consciousness in a scientific sense. I was curious about how this metaphor, which started as a way to get away from dualism and metaphysics, how it sort of circled all the way back to these theories that were very, very similar to religious theories of the afterlife, this idea that our spirits are going to transcend our bodies and we're going to live forever. These ideas that people like Ray Kurzweil were talking about at the late 90s, early 2000s, transhumanists. Metaphors are very slippery. They work in both ways. So if you say the brain is like a computer, it also follows that maybe the computer is like a brain and that the computer can do everything that a brain can do. So that's one issue. The other thing is that because I think the metaphors that we use, they tend to form themselves around these older metaphors. The popular way now of talking about the brain is that there's hardware and there's software, right? There's the brain, sort of the hardware, and then the mind is the software. It's very similar to the way that we used to talk about the body and the spirit. Even though we're using these very contemporary metaphors, seemingly we're sort of rehashing and rehearsing these old ontologies that we've supposedly moved beyond. This is where I have the biggest problem with Julian James's argument for the bicameral mind, is that the evidence for the bicameral mind, which he says is so voluminous that it's not even worth attacking, is actually pretty specific, right? It's the Iliad and the Odyssey, these two poems, and then a lot of stuff that he picked from the Mesopotamian era, the Mesopotamian era being half of history. And he focuses a lot on the Asher period, which is late Mesopotamia, like 700-ish BC. These people in Asher were notoriously vicious. Everything he said about them is true. They were just like uncannily mean, vicious people who would just murder indiscriminately. And this is how they consolidated power. And maybe they were the first people in the historical record to be credited with this, but it's unclear whether they were the first people to behave that way, but they were certainly the first people to see themselves that way. He describes the Asher period as this era of almost like exponential growth where the bicameral mind was changing faster than ever. But this is also the period where, especially in 1976, we have the most translated tablets from. I wonder if it's a fallacy to think that you're seeing exponential growth in a historical period that you're studying, because I think it looks like you're experiencing exponential growth wherever you live. I found this to be the most inelegant and sloppy part of his thesis also, just because he gives so many different reasons why it broke down. Like he starts off talking about, yeah, this growth that happened, the fact that these agricultural communities were getting too large and the voices were getting cacophonous and chaotic. That was one part of it. And then writing was invented. And so this idea of hearing the auditory commands became externalized. You could have laws on tablets. This was another form of social control. And so the voices were not necessary anymore. And then he talks about trade. He talks about deceits and like all of these different things. I think that there's a way in which he probably thought like, oh, here, more possibilities is going to become more convincing. But in a way, it starts to be like, okay, well, you're just finding evidence everywhere you look. Yeah, that was the part that sounded conspiratorial a little bit to me, right? And then at the time of Ashurbanipal, writing was already 1800 years old. It wasn't new to them. It had been evolved to be more what we would recognize kind of recently, but it was still not new. Writing as Ashurbanipal and his people practiced it pretty much had been established for several hundred years by the time that this period comes across. I think any Assyriologist, and I do not call myself an Assyriologist, but I'm imagining an Assyriologist 
reading this book would just think that he was drastically and intensely oversimplifying the state of mind that we can infer from the stuff that we have. And also, a lot of things have been found and a lot of things have been translated since 1976. The main point for me is, so he takes all of this historical data and all of these poems and all this stuff to point to the state of mind that people had 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. I just don't know if that kind of analysis is really possible. This also touches on your work where we talk about technology and the idea that you can know what someone is thinking by knowing all of these data points about them. Google can't really know what I'm thinking. Google can know what I'm likely to buy. It can definitely predict some actions I'm likely to take with an eerie degree of accuracy. A good example would be, here we are, we were introduced by two algorithms, right? But I don't know if Google could make a judgment about whether or not I'm conscious. So to extend that logic, I think it's a little bit ridiculous to try to ascribe a state of mind to a fictional character, Odysseus or Achilles, based on a poem of a couple tens of thousands of words. And his argument really does hinge on that. The discussion of the Iliad too, what I found is that there's so many exceptions that he comes up with where, okay, there's no account of human subjectivity in the Iliad. No desires, no introspection. Oh, except for there's like one passage maybe where there's sort of a moment of introspection, but then he explains it by, oh, well, this was added later. And he does say, you know, scholars agree that this was a later edition, but I mean, for me, it was sort of those moments where he was really getting into the weeds of the language that was used in these texts that I also started to question his thesis in those moments. Yeah. This is, again, I think a legacy of our Christian heritage is that we're used to just studying books as if these books have some sort of intent. These are just things that people wrote and a famous a seriology story is Leonard Woolley, who was one of the main guys who discovered stuff in the 1900s. And he discovered this pit at the temple of Ashurbanipal where it was a ritual suicide where the king had died or some major person had died. And a bunch of servants came into the pit and committed suicide by drinking poison beer from this vat. And then there was one girl who was one of the servant girls who arrived late and was affixing her ribbon to her hair. Everyone else had the ribbons in her hair. And she was putting the ribbon on her hair. And she drank the poison, but she didn't even get to do her hair in time. You know, it's this very vivid description, right? And it's beautiful. And this is what he wrote to the Times of London or whoever was sponsoring this expedition as copy for the newspaper. And it's riveting. But we forget that what he found was a pile of bones. He made all that stuff up. Maybe it's a plausible story for what happened in that pit, but it was a pit with a copper pot and a bunch of dead people. <laughs> I mean, that is interesting. I like the connection that you made to this more basic impulse we have to project intentions onto other people or to see and to imagine that we know what's happening in their minds when we don't. That is also a historical impulse where you have these specific pieces of data or certain points of evidence and that I think there's this natural tendency to try to create a narrative out of it. I think that probably James is guilty of that to some degree too, where there's a lot of conjecture here. There's a lot of speculation that is being presented as though it's based in these specific points of evidence. The other thing that I couldn't help reading into this, and maybe this is just, it's 2022, but this really opens the door for some weird racism. I mean, he's saying that certain humans are conscious and certain humans are not, and that consciousness is learned. So he is by a very loose extension of this theory, you could say that the hunter-gatherer tribes in South America are not conscious. 
There was a moment, yeah, where he's talking about the conquistadors coming to Mesoamerica. And he says, this is one reason why they were conquered so easily is that the Spanish conquerors were basically subjectively conscious. And these communities in South America were still by cameral. And he says at some point, like, oh, they were captured like automatons. There was that moment, yeah, where I paused and wondered how much that was inflected by cultural bias. That story is weird that the conquistador essentially walked into this civilization of millions of people and hundreds of thousands of miles and took over. That is a weird story. I don't know how that happened. I feel like this is the kind of book that people who are already prone to that kind of thinking might be able to read that into this. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. He did say something at a few points too about women, how women are more in touch with the right side of their brain or that the functions of the brain for women are more bilaterally represented. I don't know enough about the structure of the brain to know whether there's any truth in that, but it seemed like it was deferring to this old stereotype of like, oh, women are more in touch with their intuition. He talks about how a lot of the oracles in ancient Greece were women. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot of ways in which it could fall into the wrong hands, let's say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's potent stuff. So the last thing I want to ask you is when you were a Christian, did you hear the voice of Jesus or whoever? No, I didn't. And I had friends at Bible school who did have these very immediate experiences where they heard God. I don't think anyone had visual hallucinations, but they would often talk about praying and sort of hearing a voice whether it was totally audible or just a sense of God's presence. And I never had that. I hadn't thought about this in relation to the book, but it did become sort of point of tension in my life because I was having all of these doubts already. And I was also very immersed in this Calvinist doctrine about some people are just elect and some people are not. So I started worrying, well, if I'm not having immediate spiritual experiences that other people are having, what does that say about my own salvation? The type of Christianity I grew up in was not particularly charismatic. So at our church, there was a big aversion to speaking in tongues or faith healing or things like that. But I've been in those circles. I had friends who were from more assemblies of God, families and things like that. So I've been around speaking in tongues and sort of these more charismatic traditions. But I think that there is sort of more of a connection to that idea of these immediate direct experiences with God in other denominations. My suspicion was always that, you know, maybe I had had those senses of intuition, but I doubted them or I had other explanations for them. I think that in order to really have that immediate experience of God, you have to almost suspend that logical, rational part of your brain and not question it. And I think I could never get to that place myself. So we have to go because we have to do an episode next week. But for us, that's going to be right now. So thanks for coming. And we're going to see you next week to talk about your book, God, Human, Animal, Machine. Thanks so much. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. I wonder if college age Bible students talking about their experience with God 
is similar to college age secular students talking about their non-existent sexual conquests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 